You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and fully loaded chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. Hey guys and gals, welcome to the Oklahoma Outdoor Podcast where you will be educated, entertained, and equipped to get more out of your outdoor experience. So hold on tight because here we go. Welcome to today's show. Hey everybody, glad you're here. This is the Oklahoma Outdoors Podcast, and I am your host, John Hudspeth. Hope everybody's doing good. Uh, I think we might have a few new listeners with us, and so I feel like I just need to say my name and the podcast name and all that stuff. But um, if you are new, this is actually episode two of the COVID edition of the podcast. This is the second one I'm recording during COVID quarantine. Uh, but I'm just about wrapped up with it. I feel way better than I did last week. Um, yeah, I got, got most of my strength back. Uh, never had any breathing problems, never got a fever, anything like that. But, uh, man, I had a really bad headache for about a week and, uh, and just no energy. And like, as soon as I would go outside, I mean, my energy would just tank. Like I'd get out there in the sun and it would just absolutely take it out of me. And so my wife and I have been cooped up in our house for the past, I think today's day nine as I'm recording this intro. Um, so yeah, it's been a long, hard journey, but just about over it and uh, about ready to get back into the world, but feeling pretty darn good. We're both pretty much back to normal now. Still a little bit of the energy loss, but not too bad. And, you know, I think in the next day or two should be basically back to a hundred percent. So I wanted to update you guys on that. Hopefully by next episode, I'll be, you know, back to work and good to go. So just had to throw that in there real quick. Uh, we got a really full episode today that I'm really excited about. Uh, me and Amy have been trying to plan this for a few weeks, and we finally got together and uh, and did this podcast. Um, but before we get there, real quick, I do have to throw out uh, Velvet Bucks. I'm getting lots of pictures of Velvet Bucks. Uh, fall is almost here. Um, so I had to update you guys about that. I've gotten a few more pictures of my number one buck from last year, uh, a big typical 10-point got several nice mature eight points that I'm getting on camera pretty regularly. 
Uh, and so it's just shaping up to be a really good year. So I'm pretty excited about that. I am hoping to go this weekend and hopefully get some feeders filled. I'm not 100% sure I'm going to get that done. Um, but I'm hoping to get those running, you know, we're by this weekend, we'll be just about a month out from the opener. And so it's about that time. I like to get my feeders running usually about a month in advance and, uh, just kind of, you know, start getting the inventory and getting the deer used to them and everything like that. So did want to throw those few quick deer things in there before we get to the podcast today. Um, but like I said, it's a good long one, so I don't want to take up too much time with it. So today I am talking to Amy Robison and Amy and her husband run Robison Fish and Wildlife uh, Solutions. They're out of the Oklahoma City area. And, uh, man, I, like I said, <laughs> I always talk about how it's a good one. And this one really is. I've been wanting to, to talk to the pond lady for several weeks now and we finally got our schedules to align. And so if you, it doesn't matter if you have a 50 acre lake or a, you know, one acre little cow pond on your place, uh, you're going to get something out of this episode. Amy, she's just very knowledgeable, Lots in she works out of Oklahoma, so I mean she helps me identify a ton of things that I could have done differently with our pond uh, that we've had the last several years. Um, and so you'll hear us talk about that. Uh, she talks about a lot of the problems that Oklahoma ponds have. Uh, she talks about some solutions for Oklahoma ponds, and she's just full of knowledge. And so. Like I said, I'm going to cut this uh, intro pretty short because I want you guys to get to listen to her. And so, yeah, I think that's going to do it for this intro. I'm feeling better. I got Velvet Bucks showing up. I hope to fill some feeders. And I got to talk to the pond lady. So that's basically going to do it for me this week, guys. Um, here is my interview with Amy Robison. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show today. And today I'm talking to Amy Robison. How you doing, Amy? I'm good. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. It's been actually kind of a nasty day today out of nowhere. We got a little rain, um, but uh, but overall doing good. So, uh, yeah. Well, Amy, uh, before we get going here, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and y'all's company and just give us a little introduction. Well, John, I, first of all, just want to say thank you very much for inviting me on. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love the chance to get to geek out about pond stuff so if uh people don't know who i am that's not a big deal but if you've ever heard of the pond lady mm -hmm. that's what i go by here in oklahoma mm -hmm. i grew up fishing with my dad and my granddad and and really you know as the saying goes got hooked <laughs> had to get in every body of water and see all the fish and and more than that i was interested in all of the critters you know big and small so I have a master's that I, uh, in zoology that I got at OSU. My undergrad is in fisheries conservation with uh, biology was the actual degree. So my, my emphasis was in fisheries and conservation. Um, then I worked for the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation for mm -hmm. six years, actually. And during that time, just saw an overwhelming need for landowners that uh, had a, a problem pond. They, you know, called for assistance. And if, you know, the listeners are not from Oklahoma, they may not realize that we have at least 300,000 ponds that are mm -hmm. counted on a census. And the, those numbers, I believe, are fairly outdated from, you know, possibly the 90s. And 
most people I know in Oklahoma either have a pond, have family with a pond, or know somebody that has a pond. Mm-hmm. There, there, there's a lot. You know, we have more shoreline than any state in, in the nation because of all the remaining water, essentially. Mm-hmm. So um, the Department of Wildlife just simply does not have the manpower. There's no state entity that has the manpower to send to every problem pond. They would just never be able to manage public waters. Mm-hmm. So my husband had already started a, and, and my husband's a wildlife biologist. And so he's going to talk about more of the terrestrial aspect, but he had started a company doing nuisance wildlife removal. Um, when we lived in Durant, I worked for one of the state hatcheries. And so down there in Durant, so a little bit different. A lot of people are just more willing to do their own wildlife removal. Um, Maybe not in the most humane way, but um, it, it it works in whatever ways they're you know up to the landowner to do. But he saw me doing this job for public waters, and I would come home and talk about people needing help. And finally, it was just a good idea to jump ship and start our own pond management side of the business. Mm-hmm. So, as an aquatic ecologist. I, you know, feel like I have the expertise that I bring to the table to be able to provide actual pond management services, not not just treating ponds for a problem, but actually restoring ponds back to a healthy state. Mm -hmm. So our mission is largely based in conservation and ecologically sustainable management. So we also value people like you that are interested. Mm-hmm. We want to teach our landowners how to be stewards of their own water so that we can teach someone else that doesn't know how to take care of their water yet um, what to do. Mm-hmm. So with that type of methodology, you know, people sort of think we're crazy for well, you, if you if we don't need you anymore, you're not going to be making money off of us. Well, there's so many ponds that are in trouble, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you know living in Oklahoma, you can't help but see them everywhere you drive. Mm-hmm. So there's there's we're never going to run out of business and <laughs> restoration and preservation of our water in Oklahoma is, is such a huge part of why we do this mm-hmm. and and to pass this on to the next generation. Mm-hmm. The reason that we both got interested in doing this is because we were in it as kids with our families, you know, Mm -hmm. and growing up, being outside and going to lakes and camping with your family is is something I want the next generation to be able to enjoy with their kids. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit in a nutshell how the, the whole Pond Lady project got started and we have been completely independent for four years now. Awesome. Awesome. That's a great story. You know, (laughs) I kind of came from almost the opposite side of that. So I, I I really don't know how I became a hunter. My dad, he hunted a little bit when he was younger, didn't hunt a whole lot. Um, He took us dove hunting. That was kind of one, you know, big thing we did as a kid. Um, But I think, I think not being able to hunt is what drove me to hunting. 
And so part right. of part of my uh you know drive to do this podcast and spread this information is because I didn't have it as a kid. You know, I had to learn a lot of this, you know, on my own and kind of through the school of hard knocks. And so um but yeah, well, you I know, have to say, you know, telling that story, it makes it sound like, you know, we were just out in the wild and hunting and fishing <laughs> all the time. That really wasn't the main focus. My 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 parents are actually both believe it or not, they're science so um, we were very much city kids. Yeah, I was just drawn to the field mm-hmm. and had the same way city kid that we wanted to be outside in the country. And once we bought property out in the country, we were never going back to the city. Right. right. So now my husband hunts, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, I can't, I'm too soft hearted to be the trigger man, <laughs> but I'll yeah. help process a deer uh-huh. and, you know, um, as somebody that has a background in zoology and dissecting animals, believe it or not, it's mm-hmm. pretty easy to dissect a deer once you've mm-hmm. dissected all the different types of organisms up the chain and down. So, mm-hmm. and a lot of what we do for pond management includes a lot of dissection of fish, mm-hmm. you know, and that's something we can talk about whenever we talk about our, uh, our pond, pond issues here, mm-hmm. but, um, that definitely helps. It sounds a little morbid, but mm-hmm. once you've dissected a cat, a pig, um, mice, you know, it's just a bigger scale. So mm-hmm. there's a lot to be said for that side of being drawn to the outdoors because you didn't grow up with it all the time. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we do have a little bit of that similarity as mm-hmm. well. I definitely, I definitely never saw myself doing this. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely saw myself retiring from the Department of Wildlife or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or, you know, a state or government, uh, federal or state government agency of some type, Mm -hmm. not being my own boss. That was never (laughs) really on the schedule for me. So that in itself is a difficult transition. Mm -hmm. And, And I realized really quickly, you know, we're not we're not graphic designers. We're not marketing agents. You know, we're, Mm -hmm. we're not accountants and we're not necessarily trained CEOs. And so there's a lot that goes into running a business that you don't get when you're getting a science education. Mm -hmm. So that being said, there is a, there is a lot of hiccups along the way when you're, (laughs) when you're two biologists starting your own business. Right. So, right. Okay. Well, if you're ready, we got a lot to cover. And so let's talk about some ponds. Awesome. Okay. So, uh, this first one and, you know, preparing for this, like you're so much more knowledgeable than me. I'm going to try to direct this as best I can. Uh, but I'm, I'm very excited personally. And so, uh, so I just kind of want to start from the beginning. So let's say, you know, a person's out there, they're listening to this and maybe they just bought a piece of property and it has, you know, a, a five acre, 10 acre pond, whatever it might be. Where should they uh-huh. start? What, like, what is step number one? Well, um, a lot of times it is, Depending on where you're located might dictate what your first steps would be. So there is something to be said for the differences between a rural pond that's, you know, in a, on a county road that doesn't even really have a physical address yet Mm -hmm. versus a pond that's in the middle of 
a municipality, a city, mm-hmm. right? Right. So um, if you are in a city, uh, you may have to check with your city entity before you do any kind of work to the pond. Mm. So first of all, make sure that you're always following the rules about any kind of modifications to your pond. So whether you're in a city or even if you're out in the rural part of Oklahoma, then you check with your county ag extension office. So there are entities in each county that can assist landowners with questions about land management and pond management. And so first and foremost is, you know, what is the condition of the pond? If you know how old it is, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know, though, mm-hmm. especially with the scenario you're providing. Somebody purchases a property that has a pond. You may not really necessarily have all of the, the photographs, from mm-hmm. aerial photographs from the land from when the pond was built. You may not even know exact date. So that can dictate some of the problems you may be up against a new pond is going to have much different problems than an old pond. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, like I said, first of all, check with the local entities, but inspecting the pond, knowing how old it is, is, is good. Checking the dam, Mm -hmm. the dam maintenance, you know, it sounds really, it's not very exciting. It's not (laughs) a very exciting topic. Mm -hmm. Dam maintenance is not exciting, but it's extremely important. Mm -hmm. So that the integrity of your dam obviously is going to affect how long your pond is going to last. So if you buy a piece of property and the dam is completely overgrown with large trees and you can tell it's never been cleared, I mean, or you see some seepage, you know, you may have some issues there. Mm -hmm. However, if you've got a, a, you know, a newer pond that's been relatively well maintained, and we can talk about dam maintenance in terms of clearing and not clearing, mm-hmm. but um, just checking the dam routinely is good. Also, funny enough, keeping a notebook, starting a notebook from the time you either buy the property or gain interest in the pond even, it doesn't matter when you start, but just start a notebook mm-hmm. of you know, seeing different things happen, whether it's an algae bloom or, hey, I checked the dam. This is what I saw. Photos. If you buy products for the ponds, having product labels in a notebook is extremely helpful. If um, you're adding uh, any kind of uh, muck buster like bacteria, saying when you added it, because a lot of times that's a monthly thing, being able to keep track of your pond is extremely important. So I always recommend a notebook. So anytime you buy a piece of water, it's a good idea to just have a full water quality workup done. I would recommend using the Oklahoma Department of Environmental Quality because, you know, there are state accredited labs. There are other private labs that are accredited, but it's always good to have water quality tests on file for your own protection and just to see where you're at in terms of what management issues you might be up against. Now, is that one, is that something that a landowner can do? You know, is that like a test kit they can order and send off to the lab or do they have to have somebody out? Okay. Yes. 
No, or that either way, I mm-hmm. think they offer technicians to come out and draw samples for you mm-hmm. if you don't feel comfortable doing that, or they can send you the bottles. You can do it yourself, or you can pick up the bottles in person, grab the sample and return it in person. So they try to be fairly accommodating. Now it is a little bit expensive in turn, you know, and I say that I'm, I, I'm, I try not to call myself cheap. Mm -hmm. I call myself frugal, right? So, (laughs) you know, it is a couple hundred bucks, but it's good to have that done, I would say, at least once a year. Mm. And and maybe even more if you're experiencing some kind of problem, especially Mm -hmm. if there's some kind of an an emergency, if you Mm -hmm. have some kind of a spill or something toxic that enters the pond you definitely want to check your water then. Mm. But just as a regular routine thing, about once a year is what I would say. Okay. So water quality tests are good. And um, identifying what plants you have. Mm -hmm. Do you have too many? Do you not have enough? What types of plants do you have? Are they native or not? A lot of times we deal with older ponds that are experiencing severe issues with either persistent algae, filamentous green algae, right? Mm -hmm. Persistent blue-green algae, which can be toxic, and we can talk about that later, Um, or some type of aquatic vegetation that has taken over, like the pond is covered with lotus, Mm -hmm. or cattails have taken over the shoreline. You can't get to the shoreline anymore. Or... One of my worst enemies in the state, and I, I shudder to even say the name out loud, um, it's one of our natives called Coontail, um, and it is sort of like the eastern red cedar of ponds, in gotcha. my opinion. Uh, it is extremely invasive under high nutrient conditions, and that's really the root of all of these types of problems that manifest in different ways. Older ponds accumulate yucky stuff. Mm-hmm. So, and I'll, when I say this, people always seem to know. If you step into an older pond mm-hmm. and you you hit that black sludge mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it bubbles and it smells like rotten eggs, yeah, that's the stuff that makes the algae blooms persistent. That's the stuff that feeds a lot of the problems mm-hmm. that we see in ponds. It's just because they're older mm-hmm. and they accumulate organic matter, mm-hmm. right? So I just uh, I go just ahead. Googled coontail, and uh, we have a five acre pond that is completely covered in it. I had no idea it was bad. It is, <laughs> see, here's the thing with it: it 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 is a there are good and bad things about coontail. Mm-hmm. Okay. It is great at clarifying water and removing mm-hmm. nutrients from the system and making them basically turn into biomass of coontail. Hmm. However, when it gets really, really thick, it can basically get to the point to where, okay, here's here's some 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 biology lessons. Mm-hmm. You know, when plants photosynthesize during the day, they produce oxygen. Mm-hmm. Well, at night... They no longer produce oxygen, but they're still respiring. They're still breathing. They still use oxygen. Hmm. And when you have so much biomass of coontail using oxygen at night 
uh, in addition to all of the other organisms using oxygen and decomposition that's occurring that's using oxygen, you can have a fish kill of it. Hmm. So you, you definitely can get good water clarity. A lot right. of ponds that we see with coontail <laughs> are super clear. Uh-huh. But you do sort of hit that red flag zone of you're headed to the tipping point to where you could be calling us about fish kill. And a fish kill due to dissolved oxygen usually manifests as killing your larger fish. So if you have larger grass carp, mm-hmm. a lot of times you'll see dead grass carp or dead catfish, the fish that have a, a more uh, a behavior that is more associated with being at the bottom of the pond where there's a lot of muck and there's actually a zone down there called the anoxic zone it's and this is <laughs> i know we're getting into some technical oh, I'm, I'm loving it i'm I, i'm making notes right here as we go <laughs> so the, the enemy really is stratification so when you think about ponds or lakes in the summertime you know if you swim in a lake in oklahoma you and it usually hit that cold spot at the bottom and it's like, ooh, that's kind of weird. Why is it cold right here only, right? Mm-hmm. That's called the thermocline. And while c- colder water, as a general rule, does hold more oxygen, in the summertime, it can actually trap gases below that layer, essentially. There's no mixing that occurs between the layers. And so when you talk, when you hear about turnover events or fish kills that happen because, you know, lake turnover, pond turnover, essentially what happens is as we get closer to, you know, fall, winter, the top layers of the pond will start to become the same temperature as that bottom layer. And once the whole water column is the same layer, it can release all of that stuff that's been trapped down there at the bottom. Or during the summertime, you can also have fish that go into that zone where there's not a lot of oxygen because they're foraging, Mm -hmm. like the carp or the catfish, and then they just sort of conk out and die Hmm. because there's no oxygen, right? Mm -hmm. So um, with coontail, you have to be careful in terms of getting it removed. Mechanical removal is obviously best, mm-hmm. but it's backbreaking, and anytime you cause that stuff to fragment, it can produce new plants. Mm. So the best solution, as much as it sucks, is actually killing it down to what's underneath the substrate so it doesn't come back. But you have to be very careful about killing this stuff because it does represent a large uh, weight of material, right? Mm -hmm. That's going to decompose at the same time if you're killing it with chemicals. So it's just a tricky one to deal with. Mm -hmm. Essentially, all of this is leading to one of my biggest recommendations about ponds. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we we are constantly preaching out because until we have a better tool, there's really that is bottom-up diffused aeration. Can you say that one more time? Sorry, it broke up just a little bit. Mm Absolutely. So uh, it's bottom-up diffused aeration. So bubblers, not fountains. Now, fountains are nice, and if you want fountains for aesthetic value, 
that is totally your call. However, my personal experience with fountains is that as of now, the designs are not really good enough, in my opinion, to be a a management tool. Mm. So the diffused air are the bubblers that sit on the bottom in the MUP, and then by bubbling from the bottom to the surface, they create that current, that convection current that causes circulation in the pond, which can, what the whole goal of aeration, diffused mm-hmm. aeration, is to mix and de-stratify the pond mm-hmm. so that it, it doesn't ever create those layers where that cold layer at the bottom has a chance to become anoxic. Mm-hmm. You also have more bacterial action when you have uh, more pockets. Well, and I say bacterial action, of course, there's different types of bacteria, mm-hmm. right? You have the good guys, like what you'd put in your septic system or what we eat in yogurt to help our guts. Well, there are good, good pond bacteria too. Mm-hmm. But over time, they, they sort of get outcompeted because the anaerobic bacteria, the bad well, I shouldn't say bad. Every bact- every critter has its place, right? But mm-hmm. over time, the bad bacteria, the ones that produce those hydrogen sulfide rotten egg gases, they're the ones that that really colonize that layer of muck at the bottom and outcompete those good bacteria. So by mixing, mechanically mixing, you're also providing some pockets of of refuge for your good bacteria to get down into the muck. Um, there's also more bacterial action in the whole water column because everything's being stirred up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in addition to aeration, we also add beneficial bacteria. So that was something that I didn't know about when I worked at the, at the department. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew about the air. That's been something on our radar for a long time as pond managers. But the probiotics are pretty new in terms of having formulations designed for ponds. So it makes sense if you have to treat your septic system Mm -hmm. to help the microbiome in that septic system work. It's the same principle. In fact, I try to tell people it's almost like ponds are almost like people. And a lot of what we do as managers to restore a pond is restoration of that microbiome, the guts of the pond, so that it all works a lot better. Mm-hmm. Things function more efficiently, you know. Gotcha. See, I'm, I'm looking at my list here because I have so many different things that can enhance older ponds in uh-huh. addition to not just the restoration side. Because mm-hmm. that's, that's just the 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 uh, getting it back to balanced in terms of having the correct number of plants versus animals, right? Mm-hmm. Then if you want to address the fishery side of it, that's a whole other ball game. You know, that's when we have to get our electrofishing boat involved. <laughs> right. Which, that was that was probably my next question is like how do you find yeah. out if you you know need to add fish or take fish more you know that's something that I've just learned kind of recently is it's most ponds if I had to guess and obviously I'm no expert are probably overstocked and not understocked 
Um, Absolutely. That's something I just learned with our particular pond that I was just talking about earlier. Um, you know, we were catching a lot of fish, but we weren't catching any big ones. And somebody right. told and me that they're that's all about the same size. Yep, yep. And somebody told yep. me that you know it's probably overstocked. So, well, let me tell you something about that coontail as well mm-hmm. that we've seen is that um, you can have progressively slower growth rates over time as the infestation of coontail gets worse and worse because. It's not that you may not have the bait fish, the forage fish that you need. You may have plenty, mm-hmm. but there's so many places for them to hide mm. that the bass can't really get to them. Mm. And sometimes they can end up getting stunted just because there's too much habitat for the forage and, and the bass aren't getting lucky in their strikes. We've had ponds like that where, you know, it's, you got bass with pieces of coontail in their gut mm. because they were trying to go after a, a, a sunfish and they missed. Mm. So another thing about that stuff is that if it's too thick and you try to get the electrofishing boat out there to, to see what's going on, you, if you can't get to the fish, then you're just wasting your effort. Mm. So some of the restoration stuff has to happen before you can address the fishery. So that's why it's always best, and especially if you ever have to do, and I don't know if I said this, if you ever have to do any type of restoration in terms of dirt work or repairing dams or spillways, things like that, where it's going to be pretty significant and you may have to drain some water, this and that, you never want to start any of your restoration projects before that's done, right? Right. So any of the major stuff needs to be done first. I don't know if I mentioned that. Mm -hmm. So then restoration stuff. Then once you get past that, or if you've got a pond that you buy that's actually really in good shape, but you don't know what's in there, Mm -hmm. then you want to do a survey. You know, we have a saying, shock before you stock, because you're (laughs) correct. A lot of times, ponds are overstocked. Mm -hmm. And actually, the remedy is to find where the fish are stacked up, where the stunting is occurring, at what size. And determine how many fish or how many pounds, you know, we do weight, mm-hmm. not number, because that that is a better representation of what your pond can sustain is mm-hmm. biomass of fish, not number, okay? Mm-hmm. So how much weight of what size fish we need to, to remove. So, like, a lot of times you'll see... I don't know why it's always the pound, pound and a half guys that mm-hmm. get stacked up. Yep. But, you know, we can, with the survey, say, okay, based on what we saw in our catch per unit, you know, and you do, you do all your stats, and we can go into that. But, like, essentially one of the first metrics that you get when you're out in the field is just of how many fish you got per how much time you spent shocking. So that in itself is a pretty telling number. But once we do our analysis, you know, we'll, we'll we, and I, I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you guys here a <laughs> lot, but it's, it's super interesting and it's super, I feel like it's super important for landowners to know all of this because these, this is accessible science. Mm-hmm. This is something that I feel like we, we can teach everybody how to do eventually especially with microscopes and things are getting so much cheaper and 
there are so many more people that are willing to be citizen scientists, you know, that are interested in doing research on their own ponds and trying things. So fish have bones in their head called otoliths that lay down rings like trees. (laughs) And so when we take fish back to the lab for dissection, we're looking for, you know, things like parasites, internal, external, how, what body condition they're in. We'll weigh and measure them again. We'll take those bones out of their head. Of course, you sacrifice the fish. And they don't survive that one. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the otoliths are uh, sectioned and then polished. And, look, you know, we look at them under the scope mm-hmm. and we can actually age them. Then, based on the length and weight of the fish versus the age, you can see if there's problems. So let me give you an example. Let's say you've got a fish that's a a pound and a half, right? Mm -hmm. In Oklahoma, you would assume that that guy is probably a two- to three-year-old fish, hopefully. That's what you would hope he would be, right? Uh If he's like six or seven years old, you know you've got a problem. Right. So... The whole adage of, well, they have a big head and a little body. Well, that doesn't necessarily, it it can be a pretty good indication you have some stunting, but that doesn't always necessarily mean that that particular individual is stunted. You know, there's, there's, there are fish that have surprised us. That example that I used is actually a very real example. We had a fish that we dissected out at a pond in Cleo Springs that was infested with coontail and an algae type that is like coontail in, in, uh, it's called Kara. And this poor fish looked fantastic. Great color. He had good proportion, great belly on him. You know, I really would have thought he was a, a three-year-old fish and lo and behold, he was at least seven. Mm. <laughs> and that poor guy all he had, he, he had an empty belly, you know. Um, the only thing we found in any of the bellies of the fish we dissected was a lure because they were hungry. Mm. They couldn't get to their bait. Yeah. So, so you know, we'll dissect it. We also look at what they're eating. Mm-hmm. So not just your forage fish, but your predator fish. You have to look at both. So, and that's, a, that's something that we've seen a lot with bass anglers, and it's nothing that's bad i understand you get really attached to your bath but Mm -hmm. it's just as important to harvest bath every year as it is to Mm -hmm. harvest your bait fish yeah and that's so you've got i I mean i fell in that yeah i fell into that bucket too because you know the bass are holy nobody you know you're not supposed to take them out you're not supposed to eat them you you know you always throw them back and but that's, I eat them. That's yeah. a, that's one of my secrets. Uh-huh. I mean, I grew up. We we caught our limit and we ate what we caught. Mm-hmm. So it didn't really matter what it was. Mm-hmm. And I think they're pretty tasty. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. but that's one of the reasons I love this job is because I when I grew up, my my grandmother would, you know, fry up the fish that my granddad just caught, and mm-hmm. it didn't matter what fish it was. I was gonna be ecstatic it's i mean i've had the pickiest kids on earth that i was able to fry up some paddlefish Mm -hmm. and they thought it was chicken nuggets and i just went along with it because they were (laughs) eating and that's all i cared about right Uh so 
it's not bad to eat a bass, I don't yeah. think. Oh, I don't think so either. I just like culturally, it seems like today, you it know, is. the bass is, is what people are after. And so you don't eat them, you know, you let them grow. But And I guess that I didn't grow up with that mentality because we really enjoyed eating what we caught and mm-hmm. we weren't too discriminating about <laughs> it because it was just available. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my family's up in the Northeast area and that is just fishing as a way of life, you know, mm-hmm. especially paddle fishing. And so, yeah, I, I would, I would really love for more people to actually try eating it because mm-hmm. it is very tasty. Yeah. And, and it, there, it is respectful to the fish. I think if you're going to call them, you might as well eat them in yeah, my opinion. Exactly. And that's what I was going to say, you know, this can be kind of the, the public service announcement, you know, like it is good to, take fish out of your pond and yeah they can be good to eat so you you might as well catch them and eat them in fact i have a controversial statement maybe Mm -hmm. um you know the traditional stocking regimes in oklahoma for farm ponds has always really been either bass only Mm -hmm. which i've never seen a bass only pond produce a a a really quality sized bass i'll Mm -hmm. be honest bass and bluegill or bass, bluegill, and channel catfish, right? Mm-hmm. I don't really like channel catfish in my small pond. Yeah. Um, I, I, now, something that's five acres or more, I think they have a, a little bit better better luck in the system. But in smaller systems, especially when they get bigger, mm-hmm. they're a lot more voracious predators than people give them credit for. Mm. And they can compete with your bass, in your forage fish at different levels of the system. So a lot of times in ponds that are less than five acres in size that have the channel catfish already, mm-hmm. if you get one that's like five pounds or more, we say pull them out, eat them, you know, mm-hmm. um, they don't supposedly quote, supposedly they do not spawn very well in ponds, but we have seen evidence to the contrary. However, they're, they're the larger ponds, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and I'm sure you've heard this, thought about this, what is a pond versus a lake? Mm-hmm. And across the country, it's different of what size a body of water constitutes a lake, right? Mm-hmm. So for us, and this is, my, this is my husband's analogy, and I think it's perfect. If you can ride a sea dew <laughs> in your pond and not feel silly, you got a lake. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in Oklahoma, 10 acres is basically a lake for us. Right. So, uh, and it it is a little bit cultural to some of the neighborhoods that have very small ponds insist on calling them lakes, Mm -hmm. or we have lakes that people insist on calling them ponds. So, but for uh, catfish in general, from what I've seen, so I've seen where they've been overstocked really bad and had pretty negative impacts on the system. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, they don't spawn real well, so they have to be restocked anyway. Mm-hmm. So the the impact for them is generally relatively low unless there's somebody that's, that's pretty fanatical that has just overstocked them over the years. So, um, and that's the other thing, you know, with that, that shock bow, the removal rate for different species is important, but it can also tell you where you might need to add in some different sizes. Mm. Let's say 
you had a year of reproduction that didn't go off very well. So you're missing, you know, a size class in here somewhere. So we need to source out that specific size of fish to replace the ones that are missing to get that balance back. Hmm. So that's what that shock boat can tell you, that survey can tell you is not only what you need to remove, but what you need to add. Um, They can also find some cool species that you may not be targeting with your angling attempt. Mm -hmm. So some of the sunfish species that we end up turning up, you know, people will be like, I didn't even know they were in there. Well, um, you know, I have to remind people when you're out there fishing, you're a scientist, okay? You are sampling the water, but the difference is between the shock boat, we try to be unbiased, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to bias your sample. You want to get a good idea of what's there without targeting one thing so that you have a, a representation of the whole pond or the whole lake. Mm-hmm. But when you're fishing, usually you're using some specific type of lure, gear, something, where you're targeting a species. So you are biasing your sample a little bit, but it's still valid. Mm -hmm. You just may not turn up every single species of fish in your pond by angling for bass alone, if that makes sense. Yep. So... Um, let's see, what else do I have on here? Oh, you're going to like this one. Habitat. Yep. Oh, I definitely have that on my list. So let's, let's talk about habitat. Okay. Speaking of coontail as a native invasive, one of the best things you can do for habitat in your pond or lake is cedar trees, especially Mm -hmm. if you have some property. Most people that have a little pond like that. Well, I say most. I shouldn't make assumptions. (laughs) A lot of people that have a pond have a little bit of property around it. And in Oklahoma, you're going to have cedar trees on Mm -hmm. it that you want to get rid of. Yep. So it's a twofer. You cut down cedar trees, and usually we sink them. I've had people say they stand them up and and concrete them into cinder blocks, which Mm -hmm. is a great idea. Um. We usually just tie them to cinder blocks with a, a poly or a, a rope that's not going to break down, mm-hmm. you know, not a cotton rope. Um, people make spider blocks, which I've seen mixed mixed messages. I don't know that the literature really supports them as being as effective as cedar trees. <laughs> Plus, why not kill cedar trees? Well, <laughs> except for if you're like me and you're highly allergic, it's mm. it's quite gratifying. It's quite gratifying. Uh-huh. So depending on the size of the body of water and how old it is, a lot of times the habitat can be the limiting factor, not the vegetation, but the actual structure in Mm -hmm. the pond. Now, if you have coontail, you have a lot of habitat, but it's not necessarily the habitat that we want. Right. So um, definitely recommend brush piles, cedar trees, and it's kind of hard to go too far with them. Because they're, they're going to break down anyway. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of an old joke was, you know, how many do I cut? Well, cut down as many as you think you're going to need and then go back and cut 10 times more, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. So um, about the size of a Christmas tree, something that's maneuverable that you're not going to roll out of the boat with, you mm-hmm. know. Um, 
that's good. Don't 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 drown yourself trying to add habitat. Right. That's not good. But, yeah. Or if uh you know if if you've got a brand new pond, you just drag them out to where you want them and then let it fill up. But right. if you've got an existing pond that's full. You can kind of place them around either individually or in little piles, and mm-hmm. that way you know where they are. Uh, I was going to ask cedar- that. You know, let's say let's say you have ten cedar trees. Would it be better to you know make one pile of ten or ten piles of one? I do a little of both. Gotcha. I do like a couple of piles and then a couple of singles, mm-hmm. and you, they don't all have to be in the shallow. You can put some in the deeper areas. Like if you wanted to make a pile put it in a little bit of deeper area and then the singles you can kind of put closer to the shore if you're especially if you're needing some habitat for your uh, spawning post spawning fry and and fingerlings and things like that but um, the coontail is a different beast so for the people that don't that don't have the coontail and have uh, a limited access or limited amount of land to get cedar trees from, you know, like neighborhoods. One thing that we recommend is having a Christmas tree drive at the end of the season, especially it's, 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 it's hard work no matter when you do this, Mm -hmm. but it's not as much fun to do it when it's a hundred degrees outside as it is when it's a little bit cooler. Mm -hmm. Right. So a lot of times we'll have the neighborhoods, whoever wants to donate their tree to add to pond habitat, then, either we or somebody in the neighborhood usually just hopefully we can get somebody to do it so that we can save them money, mm-hmm. but round up all the trees and then sink them. Mm-hmm. So that's another alternative if you don't have land to clear for trees, but they really do make better habitat than the artificial trees. Mm-hmm. However, we do often add those as well. We'll make the spider blocks ourselves. Um, a lot of times we'll go back and add zip ties all up and down the, the tubing as well to just give it more surface area. But something that you can put, especially if you've got a dock area or, or places where kids are going to be fishing and you don't want them to get snagged up, then that's where we would you want to use the spider blocks instead mm. of the cedar trees. Gotcha. That's kind of one of my dirty secrets, too, is I am not a very good fisherman, okay? <laughs> so it's out there in the world. I'm uh-huh. not a good fisherman. I have been using electricity for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Instant gratification. I kick on the juice and I can see a fish. I mean, I don't get to take them home with me unless I'm dissecting them and taking their guts out, but mm-hmm. I get to see a fish. If I had to actually catch a fish myself, it might be a while before I saw a fish. So, so um, I can talk to you all day about the balance and getting the fish to where you can catch them, mm-hmm. but actually how to catch them. The catching's not I your specialty. Not, nope, <laughs> yep. it is not my specialty. Mm-hmm. So that's the pond lady's dirty secret. Now you know. Okay. Um, I got... Two more questions that uh just kind of on my list here that I'd like to cover. Um, okay. One popular thing that I think a lot of people think of or, you know, something people try to do themselves are grass carp, you know, adding grass carp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. What are indications that you should or should not add grass carp to your pond? Okay. I like this question because I didn't go into the, the uh, uh, some of the biological uh, remediation tactics that we use 
which would include, thing, you know, I, I hinted a little bit on the probiotics, but mm-hmm. of course, fish are a part of mechanical control or biological control for uh, nuisance vegetation and algae as well. So mm-hmm. the old school thinking was that grass carp would help you with the, in Oklahoma, we call it moth. It's not moss, it's algae, the slimy stuff that floats on top, right? Mm-hmm. Grass carp don't really like that. They like the leafy vegetation, things like pondweed. Um, now, it's more of a personal opinion. I like grass carp because the way that our system in Oklahoma is set up is that the only grass carp that can be brought into the state legally has to be certified as sterile okay but it's on the the vendor to make sure that they're sterile so Mm -hmm. it's not up to the individual landowner Mm -hmm. to be able to be a certified vendor of those grass carp they have to be getting the sterile ones so that's good that Mm -hmm. means that as, as long as it's not a um like you have a neighborhood pond with a high volume flow through system where you've got significant amounts of water that go over your spillway every time it rains Mm -hmm. you don't want to lose your fish and carp are notorious for following flows (laughs) so they will try to get out if you have uh, a a high rain event where they have access to a spillway or things like that so keeping them contained is a is a priority (laughs) but i think they do good work now um there are uh, some species of plants that if you look in the literature, there's mixed reviews about whether they do or do not like certain varieties of plants. I will say that if you if you really stock them at the right densities and you make sure here's one thing, here's a here's a, a key thing. If your pond is completely choked out with vegetation, it doesn't really matter how many grass carp you put in there you may not be able to get it to where the grass carp can get on top of it, Mm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you may need to actually control a problem to a point that they can keep it in check. Plus, once you stock them, it can take up to a year before they start becoming effective at control. So generally when we recommend carp or people call about grass carp, I always stop them because it's indication that there's a problem in the pond and mm-hmm. they are a part usually of a holistic plan of action for a pond. So I like them. I think they're cheap labor. I think they're very personable. I like their personalities. Now I hate common carp with passion. Mm-hmm. Hate them. Absolutely hate them. But I like my grass carp because they, they do not eat anything but vegetation. They're strictly herbivores, mm-hmm. right? common carp will eat just whatever they can get them out on and the grass carp can if you overstock them and they strip a pond they can become a problem but they can be pretty easy to get back out with the shock boat too mm-hmm. so i generally do recommend grass carp i'm a grass carp fan gotcha. so i like them also here's another one so we were talking about how they don't really like the green algae the moss right mm-hmm. one thing we have found a species of fish that do. Have you heard about tilapia? I mean, I've heard of tilapia. I've not heard about putting them in your pond. Well, this was a new one on me too, because <laughs> you know, grass carp are sterile. Uh huh. So that's why stocking a non-native and potentially invasive species into a pond 
is, you know, not really that terrifying because mm-hmm. I know they're sterile, uh-huh. right? And people will be like, oh, well, I see them spawning. Well, guys, they didn't get the memo that they're sterile, okay? Mm-hmm. So they'll still go through the motions, but they don't do anything. Gotcha. Now, the uh, common carp, though, you know, they, they – that's a different beast. We'll talk about that maybe on a different show. But the tilapia that we get are basically the same same food fish that you buy mm-hmm. or uh, another uh, variety of usually Nile tilapia, but they're a cichlid. And they're a tropical fish, so they can't survive our winters. Mm. But that's the only reason I would stock a non-native that could reproduce. Mm-hmm. Okay, It can't side of its place of being stocked because 55 degrees water temperature they're done right but they eat green algae they eat muck and detritus so all that yucky stuff at the bottom they'll pick through and eat bacteria and all kinds of things in fact they even eat blue green algae which are cyanobacteria they're they're called blue green algae but they're actually a bacteria Mm-hmm. And and these guys, because they're just a completely different type of fish than what our natives are, at least in terms of uh, most pond systems. Now, some of our, our river and stream fish are more geared towards eating algae directly and things. But again, that's another story. So mm-hmm. the tilapia will eat a lot of that muck and just like picking through uh, like chickens that pick through a field, they can help to mechanically oxygenate or aerate, not oxygenate, but aerate the substrate because they're just picking through it all the time, Mm. you know, grazing, basically. Um, The only bad thing about them is you have to stock them every year because they die. Mm -hmm. But they're a very useful management tool that's biological. They reproduce every 7 to 14 days. So the females will, uh, they're mouth brooders. They'll hold their babies in their mouths and then, as soon as the babies are ready to go, then they're ready to go again all summer long. <laughs> so a lot of my guys actually get them for bass forage because they will produce babies all summer long, mm. really get the bass a lot of good forage, and then they die so they don't overcrowd. You don't have the risk of stunting your fish because mm-hmm. they're not going to compete with them long term. In fact, they just don't really compete with our natives at many levels, you know, in the system. So, super interesting. Yeah, um, I have not heard that one. That's very interesting. All righty. Well, we uh, we got I don't know ten minutes or so left, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a nice no uh, another little uh, crazy one here. Um, okay. Yeah. We we haven't talked about crappie yet. And so it seems to me a lot of, uh, you know, fishermen, they're either bass guys or they're crappie guys. And um, I've heard from, I don't know, I've just heard in, in a pond situation that they don't always complement each other. Uh, and so kind of a two-part question is, I guess, you know, maybe speak to that of how, how and why they don't complement each other. And then okay. let's say somebody is a crappie fisherman and they wanted a crappie pond, you know, what do they need to do different, if anything, to have a crappie pond versus a bass pond? Okay. Okay, well, here's the thing about crappie, is that generally in smaller systems, 
there is just too much competition between them and the bass and them and the bluegill. And I'll explain why. So crappie are not only piscivorous, you know, they eat fish, Mm -hmm. but they also eat a lot of inverts. In fact, that's what we see a high majority of their diet is when we're looking at gut contents from crappie caught in ponds is they're full of aquatic insect larvae, right? Mm -hmm. So the reason that they are sort of problematic is because they do eat other fish. So they will eat your baby bass. They can eat your baby bluegill. They'll also eat the inverts, which are the main forage for your bluegill that you need. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing about crappie. They aren't necessarily like our bass or our bluegill where, you know, you're going to get at least one bass spawn a year with bluegill. You're going to get, I mean, three, maybe so I've, I've seen sometimes four and five times a year that bluegill will go. Um, crappie may not spawn for three years. Wow. So that because they don't necessarily spawn every year, you sort of get this cyclical boom and bust with them. So because they are competitive in terms of resource availability with bass and bluegill and crappie, when you have something that, and and this is, now this is my opinion and people may not agree and that's okay because I'm still learning this too and trying to pinpoint where that cutoff is. But generally I say that, If you've got less than five acres and you don't already have crappie in your pond, don't add them. Hmm. If you already have them in there, we try to remove them. Now, Hmm. if you have over five acres, I think you can have enough area to support bass and crappie. But we always recommend that you do the black crappie, not the white crappie. Hmm. But a lot of times what we see in ponds is that the white crappie are already in there. Hmm. So... It's, it's it's really more, like you said, does the landowner want bass or crappie? Because I kind of have to make people choose. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to have both. It's not impossible, but you're just not ever going to get the kind of growth that most people want mm-hmm. unless you have a pretty significant amount of water. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like 10 acres or more. Mm-hmm. Five acres, you can make it work, but you're not, you're just, in my opinion, you're not going to get either one of those species to be the size that you want it to. It'll work. I don't mm-hmm. think it will get stunting at that at that size of a, a body of water. Mm-hmm. But yeah, less than five acres. I'm like, I don't, I don't think you. You got to choose. Which one do you want? Do you mm-hmm. want a bass pond or do you want a crappie pond? Yeah. If we can intensively manage for it either way. But to have both, it's just, <laughs> but I do like, I like the all kinds of different combinations. Mm-hmm. I do see a lot of the same combinations over and over. So when somebody comes to me and they're like, I want crappie instead, it's like, you know what? That's fine. This is a different strategy, though, mm-hmm. from what people are used to, which is removing bass. Right. So um, that's, that's it's just disseminating Mm -hmm. that knowledge through the landscape is going to take some time. And most of the time landowners have seen that boom, that cycle with their crappie 
And they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I get mm-hmm. it. So they're kind of like the channel cats. They compete with multiple species at different levels. Yeah. That was about to be my, you know, let's say somebody likes to catfish too. Would you say you're better off having catfish and bass or catfish and crappie? Oh, I think you could do either one of those. Mm. Um, but there's, you're going to have issues with forage availability because those are like, I, with crappie, I consider those more, I mean, I know they're, they can be piscivorous and they do eat fish, but I would consider them more meso predators where they're sort of in between completely predaceous on fish and completely predaceous on insects. Um, your channel cats are the same way. And bass are almost exclusively piscivorous after they get like over an inch and a half in size. So, um, that's a good question. You kind of stumped <laughs> me on that one. Mm-hmm. I would say that your catfish and your bass would probably still be a better combination than crappie and catfish, but you, I think you could make it work either way on that. Mm. It's, you know, it's always about balance, John. I know. Isn't the whole world about balance? It is, and it's it can make it tough sometimes because, uh, you know, sometimes a father and a son's balance don't align. And so that's where a few of these questions are aligning, or, are coming from. So, Well, I am excited to be on this journey with you. I can't wait to see how I can help uh, enhance what you guys have if there's anything i can do for you i mean you know i'd love to to see what you have in your pond is is it a family pond do you know how old it is uh i do actually i was able to and this is a tip for the listeners i was able to to go back on google earth and uh and it was built in 2008 um oh okay so it's pretty new mm -hmm. and uh so but that one we actually that property is actually for sale um, we're trying to, to buy a new one, but I'll, the podcast I would like to do with you another day that we've kind of been talking about is, you know, building a pond from scratch. And that's yeah, the one. Touch on that. <laughs> yep. And, uh, that's the one that I'm really going to be picking your brain on because we have a location picked out, uh, to build a new pond, um, Very that cool. I'm pretty excited about. And so we've awesome. already, my, my dad and brother and I have kind of already had started having some of these conversations of, you know, what to put in it and, Traditionally, yep. I've I've been more of a bass fisherman. Um, I'm kind of trying to get more into the crappie world. Um, my brother's kind of on board with that. My dad is an old cat fisherman. He grew up, you know, pretty close to Lake Texoma, and uh, he was a jug fisherman yep. back in the day. And so, you know, just trying. Yeah, to... with my, I forgot to say, you know, I did my undergrad at Southeastern. Okay. Uh, so I grew up in. Well, I say grew up. I went to high school in Durant. Mm-hmm. To southeastern for my undergrad, so Texoma has got my heart. Mm-hmm. I am, that's my favorite lake in the state, and there are some major cat. That's why I, I'm actually a huge catfish fanatic myself. Mm-hmm. I know I talk down on the channel cat, uh-huh. but I am obsessed with catfish. Mm-hmm. The flatheads are my favorite, mm-hmm. and I actually did some work with uh, you know when I worked for the Department of Wildlife. My boss that I had directly before I left, uh, we have a publication about black bullheads. Hmm. So I'm kind of, I kind of have a soft spot for those, even, uh, 
the misunderstood and malaligned uh, bullhead species most people tend to hate is, uh, so, you know, I have a soft spot for them. So, <laughs> gotcha. yeah, no, we have some definite uh, good topics for mm-hmm. more conversation because we could geek out about this stuff for for hours. Mm-hmm. I, I love to talk about it. I love to see the different opinions because I think it is the, very generational. There are a lot of fishermen that targeted catfish that seem to be a little bit older. That's mm-hmm. what my grandpa fished yep. for was catfish. Mm-hmm. So, but now it's, it is more bass or even the micro fishing stuff that's getting popular. That's interesting. I don't know if you know much about that. Um, but yeah, no, I'm seeing so much more involvement with life listing, life listing fishermen mm-hmm. that are, that are looking for species as many species as we can get. And so that's a civilian science sort of thing that I've been seeing that's super interesting and lots of pond fishing, Hmm. lots of pond fishing. So, um, what was your other question? (laughs) I Uh, think I got five. No, I think, I think you covered it. Uh, the grass carp was the first one and the, and the crappie were the second one. And the crappie. Well, and I, 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 I go back and forth about the crappie. Mm -hmm. We could talk about the crappie a little longer for another, another session or just on our own time if you wanted to. But I, I think they taste great. So Mm -hmm. I, it, it, if somebody wants a crappie fishery, I'm going to help them manage it for <laughs> okay. it. That's just always the thing. You got to have the right balance. Mm-hmm. And usually you can get some pretty magical things to happen. Mother Nature likes balance. Mm-hmm. So getting things to where uh, a lot of biomass is about mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're cutting out on me, Amy. Uh oh! I just said that this has been awesome. Yeah, yeah, I've really enjoyed it, and uh, we're definitely going to have to have you back on. Uh, been very, very educational, and I feel like we just—I feel like we barely even touched the surface of it, and so we'll definitely oh, have to do this again well, sometime. I would love that. I would absolutely love that. I definitely enjoy sharing knowledge and. I will I will definitely say that, you know, if any of our listeners want more information, mm-hmm. you know, definitely feel free to provide my information on whatever mm-hmm. platform you share yeah. this on. And I was actually just about to want to get a hold you, of me. Yeah, I was about to give you that opportunity. Uh, you introduced yourself early and you've talked about your business, but, uh, you know, if somebody wants to have you out to their property, how do they get a hold of you? Okay, well, since we're in Oklahoma, should I give my phone number? Can I do that? Or should <laughs> I just give my... How that's up give, to you. Give that... my, let me give my email address. Okay. My email address is just all one word, thepawnlady at outlook.com. Or you can find me on social media. I'm very active on my social media account. So you can find me on Twitter at the underscore pond underscore lady. And that's my same handle on Instagram. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and y'all have, have a, a Facebook page. Uh-huh. Our website is Robison, R-O-B-I-S-O-N, wildlife.com. Mm-hmm. And we definitely love to assist people. So, Gotcha. And you mentioned it that, you know, your husband does uh, wildlife management and uh, we're planning to get him on uh, next, if not uh, 
you know, sometime very soon. And so, yeah, this is just the start of the, uh, Robinson or Robinson, I no in Robinson <laughs> wildlife, uh, series. So. Well, thank you. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. I hope we can help people. Um, I hope this has been informative for you. Uh, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, glad to have the opportunity to talk to you today. Mm-hmm. So thank you for inviting me on again. Yes, ma'am. All right. Well, thank you for coming on and we will talk to you later. Awesome. Thank you. Have a good day. There we go, everybody. Another one in the books and a very good one, I might add. Uh, Special thanks to Amy for coming on, and I would absolutely love to have her back on. So many more questions. She did a a great job, but it's just a huge topic. I mean, there's so much to talk about. Uh, So, yeah, thank you, Amy, for coming on. Looking forward to the next one. All you guys listening, thank you for listening. Uh, look, you know, like I said, check them out on Instagram, Facebook, and their website. Uh, please give my social medias, uh, you know, a good old look and and like, and uh, just continue to spread the word, guys, because we're we basically made it. We're basically there. Hunting season is right within our grasp. Um, you know, dove season is going to be, I think, this week, right? When will this come out? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, um, we got dove season. We got early teal. Uh, and then everything else is just going to follow in right behind that. So I hope you guys are pumped. I sure as heck am. I'm ready to get this COVID crap over with and get outside again. So, yeah, that's going to do it for this week. I hope everybody has a good one. And until next week, I'll see you guys later.